Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. This is a special episode of the podcast, one I wanted to get out as quickly as I could because it's focused on something that's highly relevant to us today. At this moment, we're faced with a global pandemic that we're trying to overcome. Over the past few months, vaccinations have become a crucial step in this process, but there are still many questions and concerns that people have, especially around those of us who are breastfeeding or chestfeeding. I had the chance to talk with Dr. Rebecca Powell, an immunologist who's been at the forefront of the research trying to understand the impact of COVID infection and vaccination on breast milk, and in turn, the impact for babies. So please join me for this special episode that will hopefully alleviate any worries people have and also help inform us all on this rather unique issue. Let's dive in. I am so pleased to have with me today Dr. Rebecca Powell. She's an assistant professor in the Medicine and Infectious Diseases Department at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Dr. Powell received her Bachelor's of Science degree at the University of Toronto and her PhD in Microbiology at the Sackler Institute of Graduate Biomedical Sciences at New York University School of Medicine. The overarching goals of Dr. Powell's research program are to understand the human milk immune response to infection and vaccination, and then ultimately to design maternal vaccines aimed to enhance this response. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Powell. Thank you for having me. So I know we're going to talk about the very cool research you've been doing recently on COVID and um, immune response in breast milk. But before we get there, how did you generally become interested in this idea of human milk immunology? It's such a specific niche here. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm an immunologist by training and um, my my doctoral work and postdoctoral work were all in the HIV field, specifically HIV vaccine design. And, um, you know, I think as I actually, when I became a mother and I was breastfeeding and I was thinking about as, as an immunologist, all of the questions I had about what was in human milk, um, I, of course, started to do my own research and came to find that actually there were many, many unanswered questions. So I always think of it as like a union between my personal interests and my professional interests. And so that's how it got started. That's it's amazing how much becoming a mother changes one's research program entirely. It is. <laughs> it seems like it can't help that. Right. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. For me. Yeah. Just to bring people up to speak, because I think not everyone has a background, including myself, in immunology more generally. Can you tell us a bit about why immunology with respect to breast milk is kind of unique in the field? Like, how is it different than our, you know, blood immunology that we would look at or anything like that? Yeah. So, you know, there's many different components of the human milk immune system um, that are similar to what's in blood. But, you know, when you start looking more closely, you find that actually it's really quite different because, you know, it's its, its own uh, immunological compartment. So the classes of antibodies that are dominant are really different. And um, that means that the functions of those antibodies are going to be different um, than what's in the blood. And also we're coming to understand the cellular component of milk. Um, the, the white blood cells, you might, you might call them, um, are really different um, and they're really poorly defined. So there's a lot of assumptions made that, you know, these components, especially the cells are just going to be the same as what's in blood, but 
their composition is very different and their functionality is very different. And they really just look different when you analyze them, um, depending on, you know, what kind of analysis you do. So definitely, you know, in immunology, there's a lot of what we call compartmentalization. So it depends on the area you're studying, what you're going to find. And milk is no different. And it's, it's really kind of the last frontier, I think, in terms of compartments of what we know and what we don't understand. So just to clarify for me, are you saying that what's in the milk, so in the same person, so say a breastfeeding mother, if you were to look at the immunological components in her blood, those would be different than what would show up in her milk? Yeah. So for example, I mean, in a general sense, just the basic um, types of antibodies are different in terms of what's in milk versus blood. Um, milk has has is dominantly um, comprised of what's called secretory antibodies, um, which are present in other mucosal areas but are not found in blood. Um, but in muco other mucosal areas, it's it can be more of a mixture of classes. And in milk, it's very um, secretory um, antibody dominated. And then, um, you know, when you look more specifically at an immune response, so I can give you an example from HIV, um, what we found is that you might have antibodies in your blood that are specific for a particular region of the HIV virus. But then if you look in the milk of that person, that you will find different kinds of antibodies that are specific for different parts of the HIV virus. And, you know, we don't totally understand that, but it has to do with where the virus is replicating most likely and where the immune response is being generated um, and how those antibodies do or don't end up in the milk. That's so cool. That kind of blows my mind because I just kind of assumed that, you know, really? we know breast milk is made of blood, right? Yeah. So if it's in the blood, it should be the same. So right. something, right, is... Right. And it's not the case, actually. Yeah. That is fascinating. So just a quick question that's probably maybe the stupidest question you've heard, but I have to ask it anyway out of sheer curiosity. It seems to me, does it make sense that breastfeeding mothers would have a stronger or um, more intense antibody response simply because it protects babies? Or is this something that it's just, would we see any kind of, I guess, intensity difference there? I'm thinking about the evolutionary perspective of protecting a baby from diseases around it and this being kind of that only mechanism to do so. Right. Um, so in terms of, you know, if you were to look at for example, um, a group of women, and you look at the antibodies in their blood, and then you have a group of women, so, and you, so, some of those are lactating women, and some of them are not, um, you, we, you know, I think the, my, my, num my first answer is, you know what, I don't think we've studied that enough. So that's just number one. But in the ways we have looked at that, which actually specific to to COVID-19, that is something that a couple groups have started looking at. And I wouldn't say the data is really conclusive yet one way or the other, but there is interest to understand if actually the blood antibody response between such groups of women who are lactating and not lactating differs. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, sort of, there's a couple studies that suggest they might, and there's studies suggest that they don't, but then, you know, it depends. Are we looking at vaccination? Are we looking at infection? So, you know, I'm not really sure, but, you know, in terms of the milk itself, yeah, you know, evolutionarily that does need to contain really robust antibodies that are tailored to the baby's environment so that the baby can be protected from, you know, deadly diseases. Right. Yeah. 
So, all right. Well, I'm glad to know it's not a completely stupid question that people are looking at it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. So as you mentioned already, you've studied HIV, you've studied all sorts of other viruses. So when COVID hit, you kind of had a background as to what you were looking for and everything. So I know I read you were looking right at the start of this pandemic. This was not before a vaccine was developed, before anything, you were already recruiting women to come in and donate samples. What was it you were, what was that overarching idea at that time? What were you looking for? And I mean, how has, whatever that question was, how has it played out and what you've been able to find thus far? Yeah, so we started the study in terms of the COVID-19 recovered donors. That was st started, you know, here in New York City as soon as it was possible to do that. So, so that was really the first week of April of 2020. We started recruiting, which had a lot of success, a lot of interest. And, uh, you know, the, the, the basis of the study really is to understand um, what types of antibodies are produced in milk after um, in COVID-19 infection, um, what function those antibodies have, and how long they last over time. So if you're still breastfeeding 10 months later, um, do you still have the antibodies you may have started with at the beginning? Or how common is it for a given woman to have a strong antibody response against COVID-19 um, after they've been infected? So, you know, that's the basis. And, you know, we're, we have an enormous recruitment because in, in these types of studies, there's a lot of variation and it's important to get a clear, you know, significant picture of what is going on. And so you could also predict um, you know, how likely it is um, for anyone, you know, would they have functional antibodies and how long would those antibodies last? Um, so, yeah, and I mean, the vaccine study, which, of course, was much later and that we started that in um, December of 2020, the questions are pretty similar. Um, and then there's a comparative aspect between, you know, vaccinees and people who had recovered from COVID-19. And, and there's sometimes as well an overlap between um, those two studies because there are people who had COVID-19 and then got vaccinated. So, you know, there's many questions here and we're looking at many, many, many samples. Um, although we do have, you know, de decent preliminary data sets, which already have been published and we'll see as we continue, you know, if those trends uh, hold up when we look at more samples. So speaking of the trends, can we start with the breast milk after infection? What what are you seeing? Are women producing? Because we know also, I know one of the things that came up early with COVID was that it didn't seem like everyone was producing a really strong antibody response. You're seeing people getting right. infected twice. It's not like a, a yeah. disease that goes. So what was found with women there? Right. So, I mean, you know, I think a lot of the early data, even in terms of just, you know, antibodies in blood, not my work, but I think a lot of that was really just fraught with panic and misinformation and bad dissemination of science. And, you know, generally speaking, um, you know, most people do develop antibodies in their blood, um, for the most part, as what we know now. Um, and reinfection is rare, but not uh, super likely. Um, in terms of the milk, what we found is that um, most women, so at this point, looking at 75 samples, we found that 88% of them were positive for COVID-19 specific um, IgA, which is the dominant antibody class in milk. Um, and this was about four to six weeks after infection. So kind of where you have that peak of antibody and then it, it, may, it may stay where it is, it could decline 
um, but we initially just looked at the peak time. And then um, from those 75 samples that we've now looked at, we looked at um, a subset over time. And we have samples as far out as 10 months um, after infection for certain participants in the study. And we found that essentially there's very little change over time in terms of the amount of antibody that's there that's specific for COVID-19. So of course there's variation and there's maybe small drop or in some cases it appears like a small increase in maybe it's a quality thing in terms of what antibodies there. So it, that looks like an increase to us. Um, <coughs> so we don't, um, sorry, we don't totally understand how the response could be so uh, durable over time. Um, but that's something that we're going to be exploring further. But it's definitely, you know, really good news because that means that if you're breastfeeding yeah. six months later, 10 months later, you know, um, and we'll continue to follow these people as long as we can, um, we're, we expect that in almost every case, if you started with a good antibody response, you're going to still have a good antibody response. So with this sample that you're following, are they also showing a similar blood antibody response or do we not know? Or is that variable? Right. So we haven't looked at that yet. Um, in, in most cases, um, we are putting together some of that data now. Um, we don't know how the levels correspond. But, you know, we like I said uh, before, you know, we do know that in a general sense, the vast majority of people who have been infected with COVID-19 do develop antibodies in their blood. And there's now these enormous, really great studies that have looked as long as a year um, at people who were infected that show that generally there's a decline in blood over time, which is expected, but you know most people do con con continue to have positive antibodies um, for at least six months, and then some people drop off. So you know we do expect there to be variation, and we're planning on comparing the blood and the milk, and and we expect that we may not find. Um, much of a correlation. The milk system may be quite unique, actually. I'm just fascinated by the thought that you could have a milk system that is totally unrelated because it seems the blood system is protecting mother and yeah. the milk system is protecting baby. So, you know, yeah. you almost want them to be correlated to a certain well, degree, right? Well, you know, so, you know, I think the blood system in terms of COVID-19, of course, the blood connects everything. So you can't say that they're 100% isolated from one another. That's just not true. But in terms of what is dominant and what you're going to measure and the classes you're going to find, those will be quite different. Um, you know, for the, for the mother, we can measure what's in her blood, but we can also measure what's in her saliva. We could measure what's in other mucosal areas. And the mucosal compartments may be more similar to one another than the blood would be to each of those mucosal compartments. Because, um, and again, this has been really understudied. So I'm trying to get at all of that slowly because there's so many different avenues of research that you, you know, you kind of have to pick and choose what you're going to focus on first. But we have so many samples that we will be able to go back to and, and answer a lot of these questions. Um, we do have blood samples for many people um, and we are collecting more blood samples, um, you know, long term. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to find.
It's um, okay. So with the infection, we know that that pops up, as you said, kind of four weeks after that the peak is kind of four weeks after. What about vaccination? Because you just released and I know it's preliminary still, but the response. So when does that response seem to peak? And how is it different from the infection response? Yeah. Um, so in terms of the infection, you know, we're we're starting with samples that are about four to six weeks after infection. Oh. Um, but others have found that the response starts even as early as five days after infection. Actually, the IgA response um, seems to occur pretty quickly. And that, but then, it, yes, it goes up, it, you know, it goes to its peak. So, you know, by about two weeks after infection, you would expect to have those peak levels. We have samples four to six weeks after because we were also unsure initially um, if we were putting ourselves at risk by collecting samples when people were still symptomatic. So we, we sort of, that's why our first samples are from, you know, a little bit after infection, um, cause there was a lot of unknowns initially, um, with, you know, how this disease was transmitted and all of that. So, um, in terms of a vaccination, you know, what we found for the vaccine is that the milk response generally mirrors what you find in blood, um, much more, obviously, um, which is probably not so much a COVID specific thing, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a feature of having just this intramuscular vaccine and how that response is elicited in the body. Um, and then, you know, what these vaccines, particularly I'm talking about the RNA vaccines, because that's what we've had a chance to study so far. We know that they elicit this incredibly robust and very effective um, protective response, right? And so you end up with these very high levels of antibody in your blood, which is really predominantly IgG, which is the blood antibody class that you would expect to find. And what we find for the milk is that um, there's a very high IgG response in the milk, which is likely just coming in from the blood, which as you said before, yes, the blood system is of course very linked with the milk system as it is with every other part of your body. And so when you have these incredibly high levels of specific antibody in your blood, it's going to come into the milk as well. Um, so, you know, that's what we're finding. It's much more of a mirror for what's in the blood and it appears essentially as it does in the blood as well, which is, you know, a couple weeks after your first shot, you're going to really start to see some antibody, but it's kind of medium level until you get your boost. And then about a week after that, you're going to peak and then we don't really know. So we've just looked at um, the sort of peak time point, which is two weeks after the second dose. Um, and that's the data I'm referring to. And of course, we are following these people. So we're about to start studying samples that are now four or five months um, after that first time point we looked at. And we don't know what we're going to find. I mean, we know in blood that um, the levels seem to stay extremely consistently high for the first, you know, even, I mean, out to a year is when they've now looked at trial participants. And we know that out to a year, the vaccine um, is still very, just as protective and therefore the antibody levels are likely still quite high. Um, I don't know if we're going to continue to see a mirror in the milk because it's just more complicated than that is, is why I'm not sure that's what we're going to find. And I think qualitatively the classes of antibodies could shift. It has a lot to do with 
the ongoing um, memory response in the body in terms of, you know, when you get vaccinated, you develop these cells that are your memory cells. And they're, they're sort of those um, soldiers that go through your body and survey the area and they're triggered if they were ever to encounter um, COVID-19, right? But those memory cells end up in different compartments in your body. And, you know, if some of those end up residing in mucosal tissues, like in the gut immune system, and then that could elicit more of a um, IgA-based response in the milk, depending on where those cells travel. So, you know, that's why I'm, I'm not confident that we will continue to see a total mirror effect, but we might, it may still remain very consistent with what's in the blood. So that's why it's important. Um, you know, especially until kids can be vaccinated themselves, we really need to know what's up. Yeah. And so what does that, I mean, you've mentioned the mucosal immunology components, the IgA and this more blood related one, IgG, what does this mean for babies? immunity or, you know, protection to COVID in these two different instances? The classic antibody type in milk, as I said before, is called secretory IgA. So generally speaking, that's about 90% of what you're going to find in milk. But, you know, the story can change when you're talking about specific antibody. Um, you know, because COVID-19 is a mucosal infection and you get so much involvement of the respiratory and GI tract, um, those are the cells that are stimulated, especially in the gut, and they're going to migrate and, and produce that secretory IgA in the mammary gland. So you get kind of that very classic pathway of a very protective class of antibody, which is secretory IgA. So secretory IgA is special because it is um, wrapped up in what's called secretory component, uh, which is it, the, that wrapping occurs as it's secreted into the milk. Um, and that really protects those antibodies against um, acidic environments and enzymatic degradation. Um, so of course the milk itself can be considered a harsh environment, uh, the baby's mouth and the baby's gut, right? So more secretory IgA will survive all of those environments than IgG will. However, IgG does survive those environments to a certain extent. And although the vaccine response is not necessarily as classic or ideal, the sheer amount of IgG that we're measuring, I would say probably compensates for the fact that there's, um, that it's not the most like durable class in the baby, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. you know, I think in a perfect world, uh, I, I, I think that the vaccines, which is part of my research uh, overall, that vaccines could be designed with uh, breastfeeding in mind, with lactation in mind. So I think we can design vaccines to better produce secretory IgA. So it could be the most um, possible, you know, effective response in uh, babies. However, you know, because there is so much IgG here with this particular vaccine, I do believe that it's still going to be, you know, highly effective at having a protective effect um, because there's so much of it. So yeah, I mean, it's not going to survive the gut. Uh, in the same way that secretory IgA would, but there is a ton of it. So I think that that will all equal out. Yeah. Okay. So with that, just out of curiosity, because you had mentioned before, you're looking at the RNA vaccine versus others. Would we expect there to be a difference between, say, you know, AstraZeneca or Johnson & Johnson that is different, is more like a flu shot than mm -hmm. anything else? What kind of, you know, response might we see in breast milk from those? 
Right. So that's actually a big part of my current study. Um, we don't know if these different vaccine platforms will elicit different responses in terms of the milk community. Um, even though they're all currently the ones that we'd be talking about are intramuscular shots, they're different in terms of how they, you know, present the protein to the immune system and how they get other parts of the immune system revved up and, and functional um, to really produce a robust response. And I expect that we will see differences in the types of antibodies in milk and how much is there and maybe how long they last. And so it's very important to look at each vaccine individually. Um, and I'm planning to look, uh, I expect to look at probably five different vaccines because there's the two RNA vaccines, which I think should be considered separately. And then we have Johnson & Johnson here in the States, which I have some samples from. And then um, we have a partner in the UK who's sending us uh, milk samples with women who were vaccinated with AstraZeneca. And I expect Novavax, which is a completely different platform, that's gonna be the next one to be licensed. And so I think it's really important because that will help people in the hopefully near future make an informed decision about which vaccine is ideal for them if they are lactating. Yeah, that's, it is amazing to me. So just out of curiosity, going back to the flu shot, do we know how, have you looked at the flu shot in terms of the response in breast milk? Is that a different platform? Like as a different vaccine from the RNA, does it have a different response? So it is a really different vaccine from the RNA vaccines. There's a few different licensed flu vaccines. And um, previous to the COVID work, we were working on um, seasonal flu vaccine and what responses elicited in the milk. And, you know, we have a, still a lot of outstanding questions on, on that project um, we know that there are antibodies in milk that are specific for flu, uh, but it, it's a little bit different with flu to try and make predictions about um, COVID-19 because prior to the pandemic, nobody ever had any exposure to this virus. Um, so with flu, we know there's antibodies in the milk. We know that they are boosted by vaccination. Uh, we know that, you know, there is some IgG, there's more IgA, there's some secretory IgA, uh, but it's going to come from a mixture of people's exposure to seasonal flu itself because you're exposed to flu from birth, right? Yeah. Even if you don't realize it, um, you've been exposed to many strains of flu in your life and you may have gotten really sick. You may not have noticed at all. Uh, it differs every year. And then you've also probably gotten flu vaccine at different points in your life. So it's, it's hard to compare what we know about flu and even flu itself is understudied. And that's probably been studied the most in terms of the milk response. And we still don't have a lot of answers about that. that I hadn't even thought that's so true. The whole issue of the lack of exposure, because of course we have tons of exposure. You can't go through life without being exposed to the flu yeah. in some way, shape or form. You know, one question I've gotten a lot is also about, you know, milk for an older child. Or, I was just about know, to ask that. Yeah. So <laughs> questions are okay. Should, you know, my my friend's going to give me five ounces a week of milk because she had COVID, and you know, my answer to that is always: you have to remember that um, the most effective 
function of of this passive protection is is if the baby is exclusively breastfeeding if the milk is being replenished multiple times a day like 10 times a day right if they're not eating and drinking other things which would of course affect how long the antibodies are going to be bathing these mucosal surfaces if they're if they you know have some breast milk and then they follow it up with chocolate milk or something you know i mean I don't know, right? <laughs> so you sort of get to that point where it's you, you're imagining that efficacy is going to be reduced more and more the more you dilute out the milk content for the day, right? Um, so I think yeah. that you know, at one end of the exclusively breastfed baby, young baby, um, that's sort of the best you can do, and then at the other end of an ounce in a smoothie every other day, well, I don't know, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't. <laughs> Right? And then when you're mixing milk with other things, you also may, may be destroying the antibodies because there's enzymes and acidic environments and other chemicals uh, and, you know, in everything. Uh, so I can't tell you if these antibodies function well when they're mixed with orange juice, but they yeah. probably won't, you know. So I probably not. No, especially not that level of acidity. So yeah. just on that, actually, it raises one more question with the applicability here is to do with, you know, preterm babies and NICU. And because typically milk banks pasteurize the milk, mm -hmm. they are removing a lot of the immunological components. Right. So is there, but I would imagine preterm babies are at greater risk of complications should they catch COVID. Yeah. So would there be, I mean, what is the kind of, are milk banks, do you know, are hospitals taking any precautions having, you know, I know there's been research about mixing a bit of mother's milk in with um, the pasteurized milk. And that actually does seem to add more of that. Uh, I don't even know what the right word would be, but all the different components back in um, yeah. letting it. But do you know if hospitals are taking that into account for preterm babies? I'm not, you know, I'm not totally sure. I mean, you know, I think it really depends on the, the particular milk bank that is the source of the donor milk. I mean, there's been so many policy changes over time during this pandemic with, you know, screening the milk, you know, for 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 whether the the donor had had COVID or now, you know, they, we, I think we got over that because we've demonstrated that COVID does not transmit through milk. But, you know, I'm not 100% confident that that's the case. They may still be excluding donors who ever had COVID just to be on the, you know, extra safe side, which is really to like it's it's gets the point of ridiculousness because I you know policy change takes a long time so if they implemented that last you know April I don't know that all milk banks are actually allowing people to donate if they had COVID so that's one thing um, you know in terms of the typical pasteurization process you know we you can um, treat milk or any fluid uh, with a process that destroys viruses, which is what we do is 60 degrees Celsius for half an hour. So that's called heat and activation. So that's what we do with samples. Um, particularly, you would do this with blood serum to make it um, not hazardous for people to work with in the lab. It's, for example, from HIV positive people. Um, you can do it to milk uh, as well. And that destroys harmful viruses, but it does not really affect any antibodies. Um, so I think dependent on the process used in the milk bank, a lot of the antibody activity might be preserved or at least some of it. I don't know that they're really, you know, they're not boiling this milk, so to speak. I think they are treating it a little bit more carefully. So probably a good amount of the antibodies are preserved. 
Um, but I don't really know in what policies are in place at this point. But that's definitely, you know, a, a really good, you know, interesting consideration um, in terms of, of premature infants. Yeah, that they're getting milk with these antibodies for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And just quickly, something you said um, about, you know, our knowledge in the changing times. I know it's not everywhere yet because some women are still facing struggles, but breastfeeding moms who have COVID don't need to separate from their babies, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, that was a really huge issue at the beginning um, where even the governing bodies like, you know, CDC, AAP, WHO, like there was a lot of conflicting uh, uh, information um, and mothers and babies were absolutely separated for way too long. Um, into this pandemic. And there was, you know, a reasonable fear because we really didn't know if somehow the, it would be transmitted through milk. We know now, and we've known for quite a while, that there's zero evidence that it is transmitted through milk, which makes sense for this class of virus because there's never been any evidence that coronaviruses could be transmitted through milk. And almost no viruses are transmitted through milk. It's just a small class like HIV and a few others that actually transmit through milk. Um, so, but also, but also, you know, um, I think that across the, the world, there are still a lot of mothers and babies that are being separated. Um, and, and, I, and I'm not so positive that even in, you know, in the States or, you know, in North America, they may still be separating mothers and babies in certain uh, hospitals. And that's really shameful. So, you know, every, every governing body now says, keep them together. Everyone says, keep them together. Establishing breastfeeding can be life or death in certain uh, countries, uh, and I still think in those countries they're being separated. So that really needs to, you know, be monitored and, and needs to change for sure. Yeah, well, that's good because I know there's always questions that get asked, and people sometimes worry: Am I causing more harm by being close, or should you know, should I just switch over to formula and be separate for a time if I've been sick? And it's like no you can be close to your baby, it's okay. And knowing how many antibodies are being passed through at the yeah. same time is really helpful. So just to go on here, I mean, you've kind of talked about it, but I am really curious because you have mentioned how breast milk is different, it's unique. Your goal is to target vaccines for this. Why on earth has breast milk not been used to date? I mean, it seems ripe for treatments for vaccines for everything i mean it's such a wealth of immune information yeah. why why is it like so understudied uh that's a really good question i think it is understudied um partially because it's you know considered under the field of women's uh, <laughs> uh domain like women's studies and uh, women's biology i don't know so of course it's not been looked at enough because essentially no field of biology that's um more specific to women um has been studied as much as other fields um i think you know milk feeding breastfeeding is it's taboo still even you know even in like just anyone you know. I mean, you know, we don't talk about it enough. We don't learn about it enough. We don't teach about it. People have never seen it. Uh, the breastfeeding rates are abysmal in um, North America in general. And I think for so many of those reasons, it's just, you know, not considered feasible to study milk, which, you know, I think is changing now. But even for myself, 
prior to COVID, when I would submit grant applications, I would get reviews that would really question the ability to like collect these samples, um, that it would be too difficult uh, to do so. And, you know, I think just just a complete misunderstanding of how um, people can pump milk or how long milk <laughs> can be kept or, you know, I mean, I've been really shocked every time at sort of the biases and the misinformation across the board of, of doctors, of scientists and just the general public. So, uh, you know, I think one silver lining to the pandemic really has been a recognition and an interest in various areas of science, but particularly for me, you know, milk uh, science, milk immunology, people are interested now and there is funding for it in a way that there hasn't been before. So we'll take what we can in this pandemic. And I hope that the milk, our milk studies for COVID, you know, really open the door for more general knowledge and furthering the studies, you know, to, to understand all sorts of things about milk immunology. That is shocking to me that you get those questions. I mean, it's shocking and not. I expect it when I see some of the comments I see out there on breastfeeding and including doctors. I mean, it's, I've been very lucky to have wonderful doctors at times, but I mean, some of the things I've heard have just blown my mind with ignorance that it's, Absolutely. And even right now, there are doctors, you know, here in New York City who are telling women to pump and dump after the vaccine, who are saying to separate from their baby if they have COVID. Um, you know, they just undermine the importance of breastfeeding in general as like not important enough to bother with uh, and or to preserve or to establish. So it's just not prioritized in that way. And um, and that's really disappointing. So I get a lot of emails where I hear about what random doctors all over are telling these women and, you know, and that's just <laughs> what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, actually just on that quickly, because I have heard that too. And I kind of the pumping and dumping after a vaccine, which I don't know if they know how breast milk or vaccines work because I don't know how a pump and dump after would yeah, even work. Either. But um, from that, I mean, so yes, can we just clarify some of these myths quickly? Like what are the top myths you've heard and can we just quickly debunk them for any mother who's breastfeeding and worried and listening? Yeah, I think in terms of the vaccination, which is probably the most relevant at this point, uh, you know, there is still a huge concern among um, mothers about, you know, is it safe for me to get vaccinated if I'm breastfeeding? And, you know, what I like to just start out with now is that there has been millions of people, lactating people who have been vaccinated now. So it's not even like it was in December when a lot of those really those pioneers who were mostly healthcare workers said, I'm going to do it. I believe it's safe and I'm going to get vaccinated. But at this point, millions of people have been vaccinated who are lactating and there has been no reported safety concerns whatsoever. Um, so that's just, you know, I, I like to lead with that because you're not the first. You don't have to be first in line. You're like the, you know, 10 millionth person who's going to get it. So that's that's one thing. And then, you know, these vaccines, another myth is that these vaccines are so new that they were rushed through and not properly studied and long-term, you know, no long-term studies. But the platforms that these vaccines are made from have been studied for decades. And scientists 
were ready to go because of the, all those previous studies. And usually a roadblock to vaccine development is funding. And because there was no funding roadblock here and money was just thrown at the scientists to just go, 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 they could use all that previous data to just say, let's do it. And then they could get all the data they needed from clinical trials so quickly because the community rates were so high that they could get so much data so quickly in terms of efficacy. So these are reasons why it seemed really quick and it was, and it was incredibly fast, but it wasn't rushed, right? So, you know, there's no safety concerns in that regard because every safety box was ticked just like it normally would have been. Um, and then, you know, in terms of like specifically the RNA vaccines, because that's what most people are getting in general here. Um, so I like to mention that is that, you know, RNA is so fragile. It's so fragile that it has to be wrapped up in these fat globs, which is essentially the vaccine is just fat and RNA. And when that goes into your body, the RNA is, you know, it unravels, it gets gobbled up right away it is destroyed. Like you're not getting some remnants of vaccine all over. That's it. Your body says, this is foreign. I'm attacking it. It's gone. And then that RNA is there for probably, I don't know, you know, 15 minutes and then it's gone. So there's nothing there that's going to persist. There's nothing there that you're going to find in 20 years. There's nothing there that could somehow cause cancer in, in two decades. It doesn't, we understand mechanistically exactly how all these vaccines work. And that is just not a reasonable thing to be, you know, to worry about. Um, and then, you know, on that, the last thing is on the off chance, which I do not believe is plausible, that some vaccine component makes it into the milk which is a concern people have, even if that were true, first of all, it would be in such minute concentration in the course of how much milk your baby gets, even at one feed, it would be irrelevant, but also it wouldn't even be harmful. If, you know, we're talking just fats that you could ingest and it wouldn't harm you. We're talking about RNA that's probably going to be 90% degraded anyway, and also is just then going to get destroyed in the baby's stomach immediately because it's so acidic. That's it. So, you know, there's really, you can, you can break it down and say, for all of these reasons, you know, just go get vaccinated. Yeah. It's the best thing you can do to protect your baby is to actually just go get vaccinated, right? Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that last one, because if you didn't, I was going to say, I've heard, you know, those myths abounding that no, 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 but you get the vaccine and then it goes through your milk into your baby and it's dangerous. And I understand there's fear. I get it. People are afraid. I don't want to dismiss people's fears, but it's not how it works. That's no. not, you know. I mean, I, I wish that it could somehow go in the milk and be active <laughs> and then it would immunize the baby, right? Yeah. That's not how it works. And so yeah. it's not something to even think about. Really. Like, yeah. it's true. what you are passing on as a lactating parent is the antibodies, that's yeah. the part that you're passing on really is all of that. So if you were happy passing on your antibodies from getting sick, then there's nothing different about passing on antibodies from getting vaccinated. Your body, I mean, so can you can confirm our bodies do not make special antibodies for being sick with a virus versus different ones from a vaccination. I mean, outside the classes, but I mean, in terms of. Right. No, they're, I mean, they're both going to be protective and they're both gonna ultimately do the same thing. So no, just like waiting it out or saying, I'd rather go for a natural infection. That doesn't make any sense. Um, okay. And I don't wanna play that lottery, but- um, Yeah, 
It's exactly. Oh, thank you so much for this. This has been so informative and so helpful because it is, it's such a new area of research and it's an area that I think there is a lot of fear and there really, I wish there wasn't. Um, and I wish more people understood the scientific process because I've heard for years that again, the issue with vaccine development are funding roadblocks. And then I know one of the other ones is, you know, clinical trials, getting people in, you need a certain number of people that are sick and yep. that's not always possible with stuff. No. I mean, it's, we're not intentionally infecting people to give them a vaccine. So yep. it's, this is really important. So thank you so much. I am so excited to hear what you're going forward, what you will find given all that you've got. Um, yeah. Cause it sounds like it is ever developing here. So it's incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. And it is, I look forward to seeing anything else. And are you taking anyone's donations for milk now? Or do you have your sample? If people are interested in donating, how can they go about doing that? Yeah, so we're we are still recruiting for um, Johnson and Johnson vaccine recipients, and we absolutely need more of those samples. Um, and you know, we would also accept recipients of AstraZeneca. You know, from Canada, um, we can find a way to make that happen. I haven't actively recruited, you know, in Canada, but I if we can make it happen, I would be interested in that. So yes, absolutely, those two vaccines, we still need more samples. If you are lactating and you do want to contribute to this and you have had any of these, uh, the Johnson & Johnson or the AstraZeneca, please contact Dr. Powell because you can help us better understand vaccines more generally. That's it for this episode and thank you all for listening. I hope you feel better about any of the vaccination questions that you might have, especially as they pertain to breastfeeding and chest feeding. We'll be back on Thursday with our regularly scheduled episode. Until then, stay safe and happy parenting.